Hello and welcome to Rebelcast. I'm your guest host, Andy Little, again, sitting in for Sal. On day three of Rebel 2019, day two was amazing. Hopefully you've had a chance to listen to the audio recap. Today, like yesterday, we had a chance to sit down with most of our speakers and get snippets on the day and talk to them about why they love Rebel EM. So sit back and relax and enjoy this audio recap of day three of Rebellion 2019. Hi, I'm Isaho Morrison. I'm Tad Wilson. And we did a debate, pro-con debate, on coding use in kids. And yes, Tad, what was, the, what was the take-home? <laughs> that coding shouldn't be used. Ever. I think that's, that's the whole take-home. The statistics aren't strong for the FDA warnings, but um, there really isn't. It's not a good medication. It's not effective. Uh, studies have shown that multiple times. And you have the potential to find an ultimatabilizer accidentally. Yeah, so it's more harm than good, certainly. It's certainly less efficacious. There's much more side effects and head-to-head studies comparing opiates to NSAIDs. Certainly NSAIDs win every time. Hello, this is Hillary Fairbrother. My talk today was about fluid resuscitation in pediatric diabetic ketoacidosis. And the three big takeaways from my talk are, number one, replete your potassium. Check and replete your potassium early. Don't wait for it to be too low before you start putting potassium into the IV fluids that you're using for your resuscitation. Two, There is no perfect way to fluid resuscitate the pediatric DKA patient, and anyone who tells you otherwise is not reading the newest and greatest literature. Three, cerebral edema is not associated with IV fluid rehydration of the pediatric DKA patient. Hey, my name is Deanna Turner. Today my talk was about why we should consider calling tramadol tramadont. And three of the biggest takeaways from my point, I would say, is tramadol is pharmacokinetically messy. Um, It has a dual mechanism of action, requires conversion by CYP2D6 enzyme to the active metabolite, and that CYP2D6 enzyme has significant polymorphism, and we just don't know how our patients are going to metabolize it. Are we going to get excessively high levels of M1 metabolite for the opioid response, or are we going to get none at all? And then potentially we are left with the parent compound tramadol, SNRI, and we could potentially get side effects from that. Another big thing is there's significant drug interactions that also increase the risk of side effects because we can take someone who is a normal metabolizer and turn them into someone who can't metabolize to the active opioid metabolite. And then we also increase the risk for significant side effects like serotonin syndrome, um, hypoglycemia, and even seizures are reported with it. And addiction is still a big deal with it. A lot of people think it's a weak opioid, so it's a safer alternative to our opioids, and it's just not. Potentially has a higher addiction potential, and these patients can still withdraw. When you stop taking it after chronic use, they'll withdraw, and they'll get the opioid withdrawal symptoms plus SNRI withdrawal symptoms. So in general, it's just a messy drug, a lot to take into consideration. When we consider prescribing it, I recommend proceeding with extreme caution or just tramadont. Hello, this is Hillary Fairbrother. 
My talk today was about the acute scrotum. And my three big takeaways from my talk are, number one, what is the acute scrotum? It's moderate to severe pain that starts over minutes and can last up to two days. Number two, what are the surgical emergencies that can present as an acute scrotum? And that is testicular torsion and Fournier's gangrene. So you need to rule out these two emergent diagnoses before you go on to the broader differential diagnosis. And number three, what's the most common cause of the acute scrotum? It's epididymitis or epididymoorchitis. And this can be infectious or non-infectious and depends on who your patient is to what is exactly causing the epididymitis. Hello, this is Arlene Chung, and I gave a talk on why we should be pursuing our values rather than pursuing our goals. The three big takeaways from my talk were one, developing a growth mindset is essential to building a long and fulfilling career. The second point was that imposter syndrome can present a significant barrier to career choices that align with our personal values. And lastly, that self-reflection and self-assessment are powerful tools for clarifying our values so that we can be clear on which direction we should be headed in order to have a long and fulfilling career. Hi, my name is Deanna Turner. One of my talks today was on adventures in alcohol withdrawal, specifically thinking about adjunctive agents to our benzodiazepines because they're by far the first-line treatment option, but sometimes they may need a little help, and it's multifactorial, but we looked at phenobarb, ketamine, and dexmedetomidine today. By far, phenobarb is the most attractive agent. It's got um, a unique mechanism of action is that it's a GABA agonist, and it also inhibits glutamate receptors to a certain extent. And so we have potential synergy when we combine it with our benzos. And its anticonvulsant properties are also great in helping us prevent withdrawal seizures. Dosing is kind of all over the place. I do consider starting doses of 260 to 130 milligrams. And then we can redose that every 15 to 20 minutes. The biggest thing is to remember to not dose stack because it's going to take a bit, at least 20 minutes or so, to see the peak CNS side effects. You can repeat as 130 milligram doses and target a patient that's lightly sedated and calm. When you think about ketamine, we just don't have the literature for it just yet. Mechanistically, it makes sense that it could work in alcohol withdrawal, an NMDA antagonist. But we're still early in the game, so we're not quite sure how we should dose it, if the doses that were used in the studies that were essentially pain doses are even treating alcohol withdrawal. So more to come. Maybe we'll find out later how it's going to work and where it fits into all this mix. And then dexmedetomidine, the quick and dirty on that is it's just not a good adjunct agent. I really don't think it has a role in it. We essentially blunt sympathetic output. It's essentially acting alpha agonist. And so when we blunt that sympathetic output, we can potentially mask the withdrawal symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. And then subsequently, those patients score lower, they get lower, they get fewer benzos, and then they can seize because dexmedetomidine has zero anticonvulsant properties. So it's pretty risky, and I generally just don't recommend it. I don't think it has a role because you completely neglect the underlying pathophysiology of alcohol withdrawal. 
Hello, this is Salil Bandari. My talk today was on ED Suboxone Administration. And the three big takeaways from my talk are pretty much that we need to first recognize that opioid addiction is not a moral failing, but it is a chronic disease state that actually needs medication in order to treat. Secondly is that one of the best medications that we have in order to actually treat this is buprenorphine, which is commonly known as Suboxone when it's combined with Naloxone. But this is one of the best medications and the best way that we can actually go about administering this is to be creating ED Suboxone programs uh, that partner with local community programs so we can start our administration of Suboxone in the emergency department itself and make sure that patients can continue their Suboxone use afterwards when they leave by following up at some sort of a community clinic. And and if you can create these programs, uh, we can do absolute wonders in the world of the opioid epidemic from what we as ER physicians can do to solve this. Hi, this is Arlene Chung. I gave a talk on matching your passion and your purpose at work. The three big takeaways from my talk were, one, that burnout has negative consequences for both physicians and for patients. Two, that wellness is more than the absence of burnout. And three, that experiencing the full spectrum of human emotion is an important solution to burnout and one that we can do every day. Hello, this is uh, Salil Bandari. My uh, talk today was on ED naloxone distribution. And the main things I wanted to to make sure that the listeners are aware of is that naloxone currently in the U.S. technically does require a prescription. However, it is more important than anything else that we do is to make sure that we discharge patients who are at risk for opioid overdose with a prescription for naloxone from the ED or actually handing them a naloxone kit itself. If we we can do this from the ER. We do it with anaphylaxis patients that come into the ER, so we should be doing this with patients at risk for opioid addiction as well. Technically, however, in the U.S., all 50 states now have some sort of a legal innovation at most pharmacies where you don't actually need a physical prescription. There are various legal innovations such as standing orders and pharmacists as prescribers that allow patients to go and receive a, a dose of naloxone or a kit for naloxone without a physical prescription. And, and But the best way way that we can actually help with increasing the distribution of naloxone is by making sure that we can actually hand them a kit in the ED. More than anything else, that is probably the best thing we can do. It takes some money, takes some resources, but if you can provide that, we can really help with the distribution of naloxone into the community and help reduce opioid deaths overall. Hello, my name is Arlene Chung, and I gave a talk on caring for yourself, health, diet, and sleep. The three major takeaways from my talk were, one, disruptions in sleep and circadian rhythm are likely the root cause of other poor health outcomes related to shift work. Two, that there are individual practices which can be immediately beneficial, but require a little bit of planning ahead. And three, departmental policies should be considered to improve the health of all providers. Why do I love Rebellion and EM? I love Rebel EM and Rebellion EM. I love Rebellion and EM. Especially Rebellion and EM. The conference is awesome. Short little lectures, lots of really good information, pertinent that I could take back and use in my shift tomorrow. I think Rebellion and EM is such a fantastic conference because it brings together like-minded people from all over the uh, U.S. and even over the world. 
I find that Rebellion NEM makes the current information fun. At the end of the day, it's clinically practical. Well, there you have it, folks. Day three audio recap from Rebellion 2019. Don't forget to check out rebel.com for info about Rebellion 2020 and for future posts featuring videos from the conference. (music) 